0: The reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, starting at verse 1. A prophecy against the valley of vision. What troubles you now, that you have all gone up on the roofs, you town so full of commotion, you city of tumult and revelry? Your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your leaders have fled together, they've been captured without using the bow. All you who are caught were taken prisoner together, having fled while the enemy was still far away. Therefore I said, turn away from me, let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. The Lord, the Lord Almighty has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the Valley of Vision, a day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. Elam takes up the quiver with her charioteers and horses. Kurt uncovers the shield. Your choicest valleys are full of chariots, and horsemen are posted at the city gates. The Lord stripped away the defenses of Judah, and you looked in that day to the weapons in the the palace of the forest. You saw that the walls of the city of David were broken through in many places. You stored up water in the lower pool. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and to put on sackcloth. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says. Go, say to this steward, to Shebna, the palace administrator, what are you doing here and who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here? hewing your grave on the height and chiselling your resting place in the rock. Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, you mighty man. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die, and there the chariots you are so proud of will become a disgrace to your master's house. I will depose you from your office and you'll be ousted from your position. In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place He will become a seat of honour for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels, from the bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way, and it will be sheared off and will fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut down. The Lord has spoken. This is God's word.
1: morning, everyone. And uh, let me have my welcome. If you've not met, my name's uh, Matt Fuller. Let's pray as we look at this together. Our great God and Father, again, when we turn to, to this prophet, your great prophet Isaiah, it seems so far away, so distant, centuries and centuries ago. And, and yet we know you don't waste your words. And so as we come to Isaiah's warning to the people of Jerusalem, would we understand uh, rightly how it can be true for us, and um, respond as we're meant to by faith in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the uh, independence has some appeal to it, I observe. Uh, politically, that's true, isn't it? So take back control this is a good slogan or effective slogan, maybe. Scotland's choice, Scotland's future. Um, not quite the results, uh, not always all the way there that Nicola would have wanted uh, this week. The, but the, the appeal to independence, what well, it has great traction, great emotional appeal. Obviously, practically, it tends to be a little more complicated. Take back control. Well, that's fine. We'll just do that. Oh, Brexit, it's a little more complicated, isn't it? Take back control is fine until vaccines are manufactured elsewhere and and oh, where's, the, where's the border and what's happening in Northern Ireland? And Oh, golly. Uh, it's all a bit more complicated in reality. Scotland's choice, Scotland's future. And economically, how does that work? Shh. Um, just uh, the emotional appeal is great. The realities are always a little more complicated. There's no great surprise, the emotional appeal, because it's we're in control. Yeah, on an individual level, how many adverts will say something like, take control of your finances. Oh, that's a good thing, is it? Uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, I'm a self-made man, great, good for, good for you. But the pull, the emotional appeal of self-reliance is strong, although the details actually when you work it out in practice may be less appealing. And that really is the issue in Isaiah 22, the desire for self-reliance, independence, not political or economic independence here, but spiritually the nation of Judah in the 8th century BC, wanting to or assuming they can be self-reliant. We're very competent people, look at our achievements, that'll protect us against the lord that's the issue their self-reliance now you can have that as a nation or as we'll uh, work our way through it you can have self-reliance at a church level no doubt we organize well we appoint well we train well we can we can ensure success through competence hmm. that can be self-reliance you can have it on a personal level individually of course i can sort out everything I'm a competent person. I can make sure life goes well for me. And often we can, and that works until it doesn't. And all sorts can go wrong. In the past year, very obviously, business struggles, financial struggles, health struggles. Oh. And so the call of Isaiah here in chapter 22 is... Well, really, verse 11, I think, is the key interpreted verse. Here's their fault. You've built a reservoir. You did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. All sorts of activity in Isaiah 22 that the people do, but the fundamental problem, you did not look to the Lord who has planned all. That's your problem. And so the call of Isaiah here is, first, look to him. Look to him. Rely upon him. Don't go for self-reliance. Now, if you're just joining us today, we're spending a few weeks in this second block of Isaiah, uh, main blocks 1 to 12, this one 13 to 27, the second main block of Isaiah. And really, the whole, it's... What, what they call oracles against the nations, prophecies against the surrounding nations, against Isaiah. And we're in the second cycle. We have one cycle of five, next cycle of five. So Babylon gets you, remember this, Babylon gets a, a hit, and Philistia, and all these other nations, um, Damascus, Syria. But it's not that Isaiah has been on tour He's been on this sort of stadium tour at the you know, London Arena and NEC in Birmingham. He's not gone on the tour of the, the, the region. He's just in Jerusalem. But he's preaching against these other nations to say to God's people, don't trust in them. They're all going to go, they're all going to be destroyed, they're all useless. Trust in the Lord. That's the whole of this section, really, 13 to 27. Don't trust in other nations, trust in me. And then chapter 22 is the bit of a cuckoo in the nest in one sense because it's not one of the other nations, it's Jerusalem, sort of symbol of the country, Judah. It's the only point in this section where Isaiah, rather than talking about the other nations and how they'll fail, says, and you, don't rely on yourself. Don't rely on these other nations. Chapter 22, don't rely on yourself. So we will at it this way. Uh, bulk of our time is, is the main diagnosis, verses 1 to 14. Jerusalem looked to themselves, not to God. And you get two examples, two case studies to sort of reinforce that point. Okay? So Jerusalem looked to themselves, not to God. And then but more briefly, we'll look at Shebna and Eliakim, the two examples. But the big idea is this. Verses 1 to 14 of chapter 22, Jerusalem looked to themselves, not to God. It starts off with a celebration. It's a slightly ironic title, a prophecy against the valley of vision. There is no vision. It's an ironic title that Isaiah is giving to Jerusalem. What troubles you now that you've all gone up on the roofs, your town so full of commotion, your city full of tumult and revelry? They're celebrating verse 1. Verse 2, Jerusalem is celebrating. And it's quite hard to pin this down in the actual history. It's probably 711 BC, uh, the the great threat Assyria had invaded and sort of given Judah a slap around the face uh, and then withdrawn without doing a vast amount of damage. It's just sort of a warning shot before the full invasion comes a decade later in 701. So it's probably that that's being referred to. And they're like, oh, Isaiah said that Assyria was going to invade and smash us. And it hasn't happened. Hey, Isaiah, what were you talking about? You don't know what you're on about. You're just a prophet of doom. That's sort of the celebration that's going on. You can imagine that. But Isaiah says, what are you doing? Verse two, your slain were not killed by the sword, nor do they die in battle. Verse three, all your leaders fled. They've been captured without using the bow. All you were caught, were taken prisoner together. You fled again while the enemy was still far away. What are you talking about celebrating this? There's no success here. Verse four. Oh, look, turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Don't console me over the destruction of my people. I don't know why you're celebrating. You, you were invaded, then they withdrew, and, and now you're jumping around like you've won the World Cup. What, do you, what is this? It's absurd. This sort of element of. I don't know, 1938 about it, Neville Chamberlain steps off a plane from Munich and says, I have in my hand a piece of paper and the German chancellor has sworn in and signed it and peace in our time. And hooray! Yeah, good, well, right. And a year later, you're at war. It's that sort of sense. Hooray! No, says Isaiah. I don't know why you're celebrating. And then verses five onwards, let's just review how you behaved. Let's just review it. So, verse five: the Lord, the Lord Almighty, has a day of tumult and trampling in the valley of vision. I think he's looking back to what's happened—a day of battering down of walls, of crying out to the mountains, Elam, this other country—is taking up the quiver of chariots and horses, and your care uncovers the shield, and all this activity and panic. Your choicest valleys are full of chariots. The motorways to Jerusalem had tanks rumbling along them. It's that sort of picture. And the Lord, verse eight, stripped away the defences of of Judah. You were panicked, you were freaked out by what was taking place. What did you do? Well, lots of activity, verse 8, second half of it. You you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest, that is, you broke open your armoury. Verse 9, you saw that the walls of the city of David were broken through in many places. You stored up water. Verse 10, you counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the walls. of that sense, well, you repaired the walls. And a significant sacrifice. Verse 9, there's these holes in the walls. Verse 10, oh, um, oh this is sort of government compulsory purchase scheme. that smashed down the house of Mrs. Simmons and... Uh, the Brown family, and use the stone to build up the wall. It's very sensible. Sacrifice of the citizens. They move out of their houses to build up the walls. Very sensible. And crucially, verse 11, they secured the water supply. So verse 11, you built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. Now, you can read about this in 2 Kings 20. the, The king at the time, Hezekiah, there's a massive... Water supply to the west of Jerusalem. Hezekiah, in this extraordinary uh, technical achievement, constructs an underwater tunnel so that this water supply flows into Jerusalem. So, if Jerusalem's under siege, they're always safe. So, as I hear, is what you did when the threat of invasion—you, you, 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 armed yourselves—quite sensible. You built up your defences, quite sensible. You, you secured a water supply, very sensible. What you didn't do. Verse 11, you did not look to the one who'd made it, the water supply, or have regard for the one who'd planned it, this invasion, long ago. So it is what, for you and me, what thought, the question is, what have they got wrong? Isaiah is not critical of wise, sensible, practical action. He doesn't criticize them for arming themselves, building up their defenses, securing a water supply. That is wisdom. He criticizes them because they didn't look to the Lord. They're purely trusting themselves. What should they have done? What would they have, how would they, would they have got this right? Crisis, one, they look to the Lord and say, help. Two, then they do what they practically can to build up their defences that way round. Because do look how God is described here. Here he's the one who made it, planned it. In other words, Isaiah is saying, Jerusalem, if you've got threatening neighbours, God planned it. If you've got a vulnerable water supply, God planned it. So where are you going to look if you're in trouble? If the world is threatened by COVID-19, God planned it. If you have great financial troubles, God planned it. If your health is suffering, God planned it. So what do you do? One, you look to him and say, help. Two, you do whatever you practically can. (laughs) You you, You act wisely, you act sensibly. But it is in that order Verses 12 to 14, what I was after, says the Lord, was repentance. Verse 12, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, called you on that day to weep and wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. Nothing particularly godly about losing your hair, sadly. Um, but um, it's just all these are marks of repentance. You should have been repenting, but, verse 13, but there's joy and reverie, there's slaughter of cattle and killing of sheep and eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. Again, there is nothing wrong with having a feast. There are a lot of feasts in the Bible, but what do you do First. And if your feasting is distracting you from looking to the Lord, that is the problem. Not the feasting itself. Here, Jerusalem is distracting themselves from the need to engage with God by having a good time. Well, that's timeless. And so the Lord says, verse 14, okay, well, disaster is postponed, but it will come. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing, till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for. Okay, not now, but it will come. And it did come, disaster to Jerusalem. Jerusalem looked to themselves, not to God. Look, like, I'm going to try and draw things together at the end to think more carefully about what we do with that. But even at this point, I feel unsettled by it. Disaster threatens, and they act really wisely. They arm themselves. They, the people make sacrifices of their houses for the sake of Jerusalem's defences. There is technical brilliance, engineering phenomenon. You can still see Hezekiah's tunnel in Jerusalem today. It's lasted centuries. Brilliant what they did. But they didn't look to the Lord, and so they would get defeated. Jerusalem looked to themselves, not to God. And then you get these two individuals as case studies, Shebna and uh, Eliakim, verses 15 to 25. They're the only individuals really highlighted in the whole section 13 to 27. Uh, these are the only two Individuals that um, uh, get mentioned. They're, they're case studies of what's taking place here. They're designed to, I think, rub in this lesson on don't rely on yourself. You can read more details about them later in Isaiah and also, again, 2 Kings 18. They come up. Shebna, first of all, verses 15 to 19. He served himself, not the people. So this is what the Lord, uh, the Lord Almighty, says Go to this. Steward, there are various different words you can translate or use as steward in the Hebrew. This is, go to this lackey, used elsewhere for concubine. But um, go to this, who is this person? Who is this shepherd? Anyway, go to this lackey, the palace administrator. What are you doing here? Who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here, hewing your grave on the height, chiseling your resting place in the rock? What are you doing So, you're the palace administrator, you're the prime minister, and Jerusalem's about to be invaded, and all you're doing is thinking, well, we're all going to die, aren't we? So, I'm just going to make sure I have a really great grave. The city's about to be invaded, and you're thinking, yeah, I'm just constructing a um, statue to myself in Westminster Abbey. Actually, I'm just making sure there's a really nice statue there. What are you doing? You're just obsessed with yourself. It's kind of a, of a piece. Verse 18 talks about the, the chariots that he travelled around in that was so proud of chariots, plural. Here's a man who drives his Rolls Royce through Mayfair, honks, gets everyone out of the way. He's obsessed with himself. This man. What are you doing, Shep? Are you just trying to sort of secure a place in history? What, what about caring about today? and the needs of the people today. And so what's going to happen? Well, verse 17, beware the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, you mighty man. He'll roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you'll die. Oh, the chariot you were so proud of will become a disgrace to your master's house. I'll depose you from your office. You'll be ousted from your position. Oh. So here's a list of all your achievements. Shabner and... Well, that was, that's that. You're never going to get your statue. You're never going to get your elaborate tomb. You're never going to get any of that. And of course, it's worth asking in 2021, uh, did this prophecy of the Lord become, uh, actually happen? Well, yeah. What do you and I know about Shebna? What do we know about his achievements? Have you ever seen his tomb? All we know is this. He was a disgrace. He served himself, not the people. The question is, for you and me, are we serving ourselves or the Lord and his people? But by contrast, you get a like him in verses 20 to 25. He served securely. His problem was he was just a man. So by contrast, verse 20, uh, Shebna, you can go, in that day I'll summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. Okay, much better. He gets uh, a title. He's son of, so he's more, you know, just in Hebrew thought, a legacy to him. He's described as a servant like Isaiah is, like the suffering servant will be in chapters 40 to 55 who dominates the second half of the book. God's servant and how will he well, He'll take over. Verse 21, I'll clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. And how will he rule? Well, verse 21, he'll be like a father to those who live in Jerusalem and the people of Judah. Wonderful. Okay, he cares about the people. I'll place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. I, I think he's, you know, if not literally, I'm going to put a key on his shoulder. I, I think it's probably some sort of ceremonial mace that shows he's in charge but he's very impressive, you see. He will do his job well. So he has the key to the house of David. He provides access to the king. He's in charge, in other words, and what he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. And here's the key thing about him, verse 23. I'll drive him like a peg into a firm place. You can hang a lot off him. He'll become a a seat of honor for the house of his father and all the glory of his family will hang on him. It's offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels from the the bowls to the, the jars. He's secure like a peg driven firmly. You can bang a peg into the wall and hang off him. In fact, a lot of people can hang off this peg. Now, you possibly could take verse 24, Negatively, He's got a lot of hangers-on. But I think in the flow of it, it's meant to be taken positively. Here is a man who builds a dynasty for a wider family. I've actually got round to uh, reading really the, the Mirror and the Light, the third of the, uh, the, the, the Hilary Mantel about, uh, novels about Thomas Cromwell. And I think if he was a Cromwell-type figure, he comes from nothing really, but he is brilliant and does a brilliant job in... Um, being master steward and running Henry VIII's affairs and finances. And so he builds this vast household, hundreds of staff, and they're all completely protected because they come under Thomas Cromwell's name. And his family, his children, or his son and his nephew get given titles and land and property, and everyone becomes super affluent because of Thomas Cromwell. He's brilliant at giving Henry VIII what he wants. Until he's sick... And spends several weeks in bed. And then his enemies conspire against him, and by the time he emerges, he's done for. And he was brilliant. You know, for years and years a secure peg. England was built upon Thomas Cromwell, its security internationally. His network of spies, he ran everything. He made the country affluent financially. But he fell. I think that's verse 25. A day will come even for this excellent Eliakim. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It'll be sheared off it. It'll fall. And the load hanging on it will be cut down. Even the best of servants fail. Even the excellent Eliakim could only deliver for a while before he was broken. Last month was, uh, uh, you may or may not have picked this up, there's 100 years last month since the, um, since the birth of John Stott, possibly, I don't know, the most influential Christian globally in the 20th century, possibly, probably, I don't know. But um, uh, vast amounts of interviews and articles written about him, and it's terrific stuff to, to go and read, and... Also a huge amount of squabbling over his legacy. He would have sided with me. No, he would have sided with me. He would have said this. No, he would have said that. I mean, everyone could have a go at saying, you know, no, he would have been on my camp. Um, So great squabbling over his legacy. But there was the best of us in some ways. But he was only a man. And eventually, his powers failed and he died. Even the best. The floor with him. The floor with they are like just men. They can only do a great job for a short period of time. And I think we're meant to read this and think, oh, I like him. He's a great servant. But we just need a better servant. Hold on, says Isaiah. I'll get to him, chapters 40 to 55. I'll get to the suffering servant. I'll get to Jesus who serves the people. Oh, in many ways, is a wonderful father to his people. He'd give his life for his people. And then he'll reign forever for his people. That's the servant that Eliakim just points to. So Eliakim, he served securely, but he was only a man. Okay, what do you and I do with this? Right, don't be like Jerusalem. Don't rely upon yourselves. Look to the Lord. And these case studies, don't be like Shebna, who just served himself. Do be a bit more like Eliakim, who, who, who serves securely. And, but what do we practically do with this? Well, in one sense, of course, don't rely upon your goodness to get you into heaven. Rely upon Jesus, the one who lived a perfect life for you, the one who took the punishment of death for you. Rely upon him. How do I get into heaven? Not my... Labors, not my efforts, only Jesus. Look to him. That'll be true. And yet, Isaiah twenty-two is, is written for God's people. So it's written for Christians. And the warning is to us if you're a Christian, don't rely upon yourself. Look to the Lord. Question. How do I know if I'm relying on myself and not the Lord? I mean, how do I, how do I make that judgment? I think it's hard sometimes. Let me give you, let me suggest some questions. First, in a crisis, what is your default setting? Is it A, do everything I possibly can to sort this out? Oh, rats, it's not worked. All right, Lord, I need your help. Is it that sort of pattern or crisis? Lord, I've got a few ideas about what I can do, but in the end, you plan this. This is in your hands. Help. Now, let me take every wise action I can. Where do you look first? To him or to yourself? One question. In a crisis? Secondly, in success or stability, where do we turn? Now look, at this point I, I feel a bit awkward because it is the easiest, laziest thing for any preacher to stand up the front and say, Well, do we pray enough? Uh, because the answer is always no, we don't, um, and you know that's a, that's, and yet, yet, it feels almost impossible not to ask that question when Isaiah twenty-two is saying, "Are you self-reliant, or do you look to the Lord?" Because how do we actually functionally demonstrate looking to the Lord, if not in prayer? So, got to ask that question. I mean, corporately, as a, as a church, I think. Possibly, or certainly one of the highlights of the last year. That is a low bar, let's be honest, in the last year of highlights. But um, as a church, one of the highlights of the last year, you know, okay, you must stay at home, March, whatever it was, 23rd. And then the first prayer meeting we had online, and no one really knew what they were doing then with Zoom. Well, that's not fair. Uh, Eleanor and Liz Hayden, they knew what they were doing. They set it all up. Uh, But that first prayer meeting we had on on Zoom as a church, and all this work, Oh, my goodness, 150 screens, 200-odd-plus people. That's great. It's not everyone, but it's more people than we've ever had come and pray. Oh, how encouraging. And, of course, as we got used to things and certainly things got easier, the number drops every month and it drops every month and it drops every month. Just a little bit, just a little bit. And, look, I know, I know. We're bored of screens. I know that. And life is a bit more interesting. We can do things now. We can sit outside and get freezing with our friends of an evening. I know we can do that. And yet, what indicates that we rely upon the Lord and not ourselves, if not how we pray? And this is not the lazy, I hope this is not just the lazy option, because I say this to myself individually. Was I more prayerful a year ago than at this point in time? Yes. Stability. So look, where do we turn in crisis? Where do we turn in stability? Thirdly, I guess, like a third little question, in the decisions of life, do we follow what God has told us to do in the scriptures, or do we say, I'm not sure that's realistic? I think I need to be wise and choose my own option rather than that's just not practical what God is saying I should be doing here. He doesn't understand my scenario. No, verse 11, he is the one who made it. He is the one who planned it. Look, you might have better questions. There's three. There's nothing radical in them, is there? But how else do we know? Whether we're relying on ourselves or looking to the Lord. So look, there's Isaiah twenty-two. And Isaiah says, verse eleven, look to the one who made this world. Trust in the one who planned it long ago. And more than then, back then, we can have confidence that we can look upon, look to him and rely upon him, because he's demonstrated it over and over again supremely in coming to this world in Christ, look to him. Don't rely on yourself. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, here here is a temptation that we all know At times, we throw ourselves upon you. We despair of our own abilities, our own resources, and say, we need you. And often, we don't. We think, we got this, Lord. Actually, I don't need you right now. I'm quite competent for life today, this week, this year, this decade. Father, would we be those who demonstrably look first to you, And then are wise and carry out all sorts of activities and plan. But will we look to you? Will we look to the one who wonderfully has made this world, who has planned all circumstances? Would we trust you? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.